The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by my friend and Spectator World columnist and also the editor of Modern Age, um, which is a very, very good quarterly in, in America. And he's called Daniel McCarthy. <laughs> I should say the name. Uh, Daniel's here in London and you've been going around uh, to various conservative conferences and talking to a lot of conservatives. And you've written a very interesting piece in the New York Post, which is entitled Britain's Bad Example for American Conservatives. Give us a little summary of the of the thesis, please, Dan. Yes, I suppose I'm a little uh, ungrateful to my host there in writing something uh, rather critical of uh, the British Tories. Um, so I've been in the UK for the past few days, uh, first of all, for a conference at Churchill College in Cambridge on British intellectual conservatism. And it was interesting that very few of the British intellectual conservatives there were terribly fond of the Tory party. And in fact, some of them saw the best hope for renewal in British politics coming from uh, the predicted drubbing of the conservatives at the next election. So um, it got me thinking about how American Republicans, the, uh, the more conservative perhaps of the two parties in the United States, um, how they would, you know, they would give their eye teeth to have the kind of tenure in power that the Conservative Party has had here in the UK. So 12 years in power, um, 13 actually, admittedly part of that in coalition with the Lib Dems for the first several years. Uh, nevertheless, though, I mean, that is a tenure in power, which of course, you know, includes both executive and legislative power in effect. American Republicans, you know, could never imagine such a thing. They'd have to win three presidential elections in a row. They'd have to consistently control the House of Representatives and the US Senate to wield that kind of power. And yet, um, you know, certainly the impression I got from the gathering at Cambridge was that the Tories haven't really delivered very much for all that time they've been in power. And uh, so I, I wrote a piece analyzing why that might be the case and what lessons American Republicans should learn from the doldrums into which the Tory party has uh, steered itself. Well, uh, let me mount uh, a probably quite a feeble defense of the Conservative Party in the last 12, 13 years. You have Brexit, which was a, a seismic event in British politics. I think everyone can agree on that. And the implementation of it was very destructive for the party, and it was very difficult to do. And so, the, a lot of a lot of the sort of failures of Tory parties because of the distraction of that, and actually governing was very hard because of the distraction of that. And I think you could say there's a similarity with Donald Trump in that you know the Trumpist revolution did not really happen because just the the institutions of government went so crazy at the thought that Donald Trump was was president. And then I suppose, secondly, you could say the pandemic uh, also scrambled everything. Uh, and again, there's possibly a, a comparison with, with Trump there and why perhaps uh, he lost the election in the end. 
Um, do, do you accept those two factors as, as being reasons why the Conservative failed? Up to a point. I mean, I think the, uh, the Brexit saga, unfortunately, shows how a political party should not deal with its own voters. So uh, the Conservative voting base seemed to be quite enthusiastic about Brexit. And in fact, not only does the Brexit referendum succeed in 2016, but also uh, the 2019 election, which is really the one where you have a Tory leader, Boris Johnson, who is you know, fully in favour of Brexit. That's when you have you know, a great... Uh, uh, you know, 50-seat basically landslide for the Tories in that general election. You also get about 42% of the voting public uh, supporting the Conservatives at that election, which, uh, you know, as I understand, is quite a high watermark, uh, mm. you know, since uh, I think the last time the Tories did so well, or anyone did so well, was in 1979 when Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, first became Prime Minister. So uh, the Tories knew that their voters wanted Brexit, and yet it took the party a very long time to produce a leader who would actually follow through with any degree of um, real enthusiasm. So David Cameron, you have this disaster where, uh, on the one hand, Cameron was not sufficiently confident in his own abilities as a leader that he could simply tell his uh, supporters, tell the party's voters, no, we will not have a Brexit referendum. Now, it would have been a very bold thing. It would almost certainly have been a noose around his neck. I mean, it would have been disastrous. But his alternative was either that or say, yes, we're going to have it, and we're actually going to have the party reflect the views of its members and the voters, and we're actually going to support um, Brexit. Instead, Cameron tried to split the baby in the middle. You have the referendum, but you have the Tory party, or at least David Cameron's government, opposing it, or mm-hmm. David Cameron himself opposing it, uh, which is a terrible mixed message. Um, mm-hmm. You can see why you would have a failure in a party that uh, you know is unable to grapple with its own uh, sort of direction being set by the members in that way. Um, similarly, I think, uh, you know, when you eventually get to Theresa May, um, you know, you have... The Republican Party in the United States likes this idea that maybe it can take some of the populist energy of the Donald Trump movement, but have, you know, a kind of old-fashioned, you know, center-right, you know, maybe even just dead center kind of responsible, respectable leadership. And it seems to me that Theresa May was uh, a way to have kind of... um, old guard leadership of a party which was becoming more populist and more in favor of Brexit. And that didn't work out either. So it was only when you finally get a leader who uh, is full, you know, wholeheartedly in favor of Brexit with Boris Johnson that you then start to have success. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you have COVID after that. Although, uh, as I say in my article, I don't think so much COVID for all that it has been very damaging, of course. But I don't think that's the the center of the problem. I think the the prime problem, and this is something I picked up on in Cambridge with all these academics discussing this question, is that the party doesn't really have a post-Brexit vision. Uh, Brexit has been very difficult to implement. There have been any number of problems or disappointments. But um, I think the voters are still quite populist or you know, economically nationalist in their mm-hmm. leaning. Uh, certainly all the indications say that they are. And yet it's not clear what the party would actually offer them uh, you know, in terms of policy mm. uh, that would reward uh, or that would implement uh, what the, the voters want to see happen. Well, I suppose that was the levelling up agenda. It's not really possible to make a comparison with America there because uh, obviously you have many centres of power in America and, and many cities that actually do have enormous amounts of, of wealth and influence. But I think levelling up was the agenda of, of Boris Johnson and I think it's a, a bad phrase and it's been badly implemented but there was a a populist idea there to get you know to get money away from london and into uh, deprived areas of, of the country. And that's a good initiative and something that I think the party needs to follow up on and uh you know obviously uh Boris Johnson's um 
COVID difficulties and, you know, his uh, way of dealing with things uh, magnified his troubles. But I do think there is this sense, or at least I got the sense uh, from my own, uh, you know, sort of discussions uh, while I've been in the country, that um, the Conservative Party is rather directionless. So even if you have Boris Johnson uh, with a firm idea for leveling up, uh, I think there's a question right now as to whether uh, there would be any follow through in a subsequent uh, with a subsequent leader. And I think, you know, certainly Liz Truss seemed to be a, you know, if not a, an explicit turn away from leveling up, this mm. idea of perhaps returning to a more Thatcherite kind of leadership. And uh, that, too, turned out to be uh, rather a misstep. Is the problem that because the Conservative Party is called conservative, it has all always been what conservatism is, or for a long time has been what conservatism is. You know, this was actually something that uh, this conference in Cambridge discussed. And uh, I forget which expert it was who was talking about this. And he seemed uh, you know, to think that the the name was not really a burden, that uh, the name, in fact, was something well-liked by voters. No, I don't think I don't think a name itself is uh, necessarily uh, the destiny, omen is nomen, or nomen is omen, rather, for, uh, for any political party. Uh, in fact, it's always remarkable to see, you know, which countries have you know, liberal parties that are, in fact, the right-wing party. Yes. Um, so, so, no, I mean, the name itself I don't think is a burden. But I do think one of the um, one of the strengths that the Conservative Party thinks it has, which may, in fact, be a weakness, is this idea of itself as the natural party of government. Mm. Because what that does is it says simply holding on to power is a sufficient identity, and you don't need to have a well-defined program or something that is connecting your leadership with your voters in terms of an agenda. And, you know, I think this idea of being a natural uh, party of, of power, natural party of government, this is, you know, it's, it's a mistake that Gaullists made in France. It's a mistake that, you know, any number of center-right parties after the Cold War have made. And uh, what we've seen elsewhere, of course, has been uh, the rise of various populist and otherwise disruptive third, fourth, fifth parties. Yeah. Uh, within the United States, what you saw, of course, was the Donald Trump insurgency within the Republican Party. Um, so you can still have, you know, the uh, you can put new wine in the old bottle, so to speak. But I do think you have to have this sense that you actually do need a new product. You can't simply have, you know, a return to the good old days of the 1980s or, uh, you know, relying on the 200 plus years, you know, history of the party to, to bail it out. Did you get the sense that um, people are, or conservative people are, perhaps not the intellectuals that you were talking to, but the conservative people are in despair at the failure of Brexit to happen? Because, I mean, so you hear a lot of talk about the blob here, and the blob is, I think, our word for the swamp. Probably that's a fair, fair comparison. And a lot of Tory voters, if I think polls are, are right or, or research is right, um, feel that... It's all very well for Tories to talk about taking on the blob, tackling the blob, but they've been talking about doing it for 12 years, not actually doing anything or not achieving anything. So even though their sort of stated intentions are things that a lot of voters agree with, you look at illegal migration, something like that, they don't actually get it done. It's their failure to deliver. I think that's right. And um, certainly immigration uh, on both sides of the Atlantic is mm. something that parties of the right need to take seriously and, and restrict. That said, I do believe that one of the things we see with populist parties uh, that eventually gain power, perhaps uh, Milani's government in Italy and others, for example, or for that matter, you know, the previous, you know, sort of populist uh, wave with uh, the 
formerly the Lega Nord, I guess just Lega now is what mm. it is. Um, but we often see that uh, populism has a very strong critique of the establishment and of the political class. But once uh, the populists actually gain power, what can they do? Because mm. they're dealing with a bureaucracy that may be entrenched. Also, it's one thing to criticize globalization and free trade. It's another to actually revitalize industry, mm. assuming that can be done at all. So one of the things I argue in this article is that, you know, I think a stronger tariff policy, for example, in the United States is a good policy to have, and it would, would you know, help many of our industrial states. That said, uh, that is a, a, a policy that's going to have limits, and it's not going to, by itself, be enough to give you, you know, an economic boom. Uh, certainly not. Mm. So um, I think economic nationalists and populists need to think much more seriously about uh, having a wider agenda than just Brexit, than just, you know, getting, uh, well, decentralization is a very broad and important subject. So getting, you know, getting capital just out of London into other places is a useful thing. Um, and the United States needs, you know, the United States, despite being a very large country and decentralized in many respects, um, economically can be quite concentrated uh, mm. in places like Silicon Valley and in New York City uh, and in Washington, D.C. and its suburbs for that matter. So decentralization is a very important thing that needs to be articulated in many ways. But in general, uh, I think the populists, they have a stronger critique than they do, uh, you know, an active agenda that they can pursue and implement. Um, towards the end of your piece, Dan, you put a line in where you say social conservatism, something like populism, are the starting point for right-leaning politics today. That doesn't mean forgetting what Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher got right or ignoring the demographics of the future. Um, what do you think Reagan and Thatcher got right there? Or are you saying, actually, they, on the whole, they need to ditch Thatcherism and Reaganism as they are understood today? Well, they're misunderstood today because, and this was actually a point uh, which came up at the Cambridge conference and which um, uh, a parallel thought has also been uh, circulating, uh, you know, among my circles in Washington, D.C. Um, there's this question of how you understand Thatcher and Reagan in retrospect. Do you see them both as purely sort of neoliberal, uh, Hayekian, libertarian style um, candidates? Uh, and do you think that that was the secret to their appeal? Or do you, in fact, look at, uh, you know, Thatcher's uh, Falklands victory, Thatcher's uh, social conservatism with respect to uh, laws about the teaching of homosexuality in schools? Uh, if you look at Ronald Reagan, you can see that in addition to his free market economic agenda, he was also someone who was seen as uh, both being, you know, sort of strong in criticizing communism, but also uh, keeping America out of endless wars like Vietnam. And, um, and social conservatism was also a significant significant component of Ronald Reagan's uh, electoral coalition in the 1980s. So on the one hand, I think that there's a need to re-examine Reagan and Thatcher and to see the elements of them that were not simply economic liberalism. That said, I do think that, you know, the fact that both Prime Minister Thatcher and President Reagan were successful in economically revitalizing their countries after a quite stagnant period in the 1970s, that is something that we should keep in mind as, you know, we, we don't need to repeat the follies of the 1970s, um, that, you know, there should be some permanent lessons derived from the 1980s, one of which is that entrepreneurship is a good thing. But what you don't want to have is entrepreneurship, which becomes corrupted by cronyist relationships with government and that becomes kind of uh, centralized within a particular uh, locale, as in the case perhaps with London today. So the, the system has been gamed since the 1980s, but entrepreneurship itself is good. Low taxes are also very good. And so I think those parts of the Reagan and Thatcher orthodoxy should continue. Uh, the other thing I, I note in that um, uh, sentence you quoted, I do think there is, you know, one can understand the intelligent thought 
behind what David Cameron was trying to do in being, you know, a conservative leader who actually gives Great Britain uh, same-sex marriage. Mm. Now, that's a very shocking thing from an American perspective. Uh, the Republicans have never, uh, you know, they, they've accepted same-sex marriage now, but they, they certainly were not uh, in general supporters of it. Uh, in fact, for that matter, Barack Obama, of course, was not a supporter of same-sex <laughs> marriage uh, when he was reelected in 2012. But once, uh, once the Supreme Court did its work, uh, you know, the Democrats certainly fell into line and a lot of Republicans did as well. Um, but you can see what, what David Cameron was trying to do. He, he, he recognized the need for the Tory party to have a you know, foothold among the next generation, generally attitudes towards homosexuality among, well, and, and all you know, sort of gender and sexuality questions are much more progressive among um, what in America, perhaps, and I don't know if it's true here as well, is called Generation Z and the millennials and so forth. Yeah. Generation Z, I suppose, Z, to be yeah, the yeah, British. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, you could see what David Cameron was trying to do. He was trying to say, okay, let's, let's embrace this thing that young people believe in, and uh, this will give us uh, you know, an entree into the future. However, that involved jettisoning whatever. Now, admittedly, Britain doesn't have social conservatives quite in the sort of organized political way that you have in the United States, but I still think it was unnecessarily leaving behind voters who had reservations about same-sex marriage. And in fact, uh, that would have included a lot of especially working-class voters who might have traditionally been supporters of the Labour Party, but who could perhaps, especially in the era of Brexit, start to become constituencies for the Conservative Party. So I think uh, you could see what Cameron was trying to do. There is a need for conservatives on both sides of the Atlantic to reach out to young people. But they should not. Uh, but I think embracing social liberalism is the wrong move to make, uh, in part because you already have socially liberal parties on the left. Mm. So how were the conservatives in this case, going to be differentiated from uh, the Lib Dems or from uh, from Labour eventually, uh, and in the case of the United States, um, you know, you'd be leaving behind all of your Christian conservative voters uh, in a, a vain attempt to appeal to kind of suburban, highly educated, uh, perhaps younger, mostly Democratic voters, and that would just be suicidal. I always think it's interesting that uh, if you look at the growth of UKIP in the 2010s, it can be tracked quite neatly with the advent of gay marriage and Cameron's sort of putting it forward as, as the, the policy, the thing he was most proud of in government. Uh, but you never get, it never got picked up in polling that, uh, that people were a majority against or, or anything like that because I think it's a more nerve-wracking thing in Britain to say you're anti-gay marriage because we're more of a post-Christian country than America is. Yeah, I think in many circles in America, especially elite ones in higher education, for example, or in uh, the media, it can also be very difficult there, too, um, for people to say that they're opposed or critical of uh, same-sex marriage. And, of course, this has even gone so far as to, you know— uh, affect the discussion of transgenderism, which is a even you know yeah. uh, more uh, perhaps a radical transformation. Yeah. You know, so we've gone from transforming the institution of marriage to transforming the institution of sex itself yes. uh, of men and women. So, uh, and in fact, you know, I, I won't name names here, but I was writing a uh, an article for a, a mainstream centrist, you know, slightly center-left American newspaper, and I was discussing a Republican candidate's views on uh, gender reassignment treatments for minors. And I tried to, you know, uh, describe this in, in language that would be, you know, clear, but uh, not um, not uh, leading or partisan. Yeah. Uh, and when the edits came back, the editors had changed my language to gender-affirming treatment, uh, which, you know, that is a, a term <laughs> which obviously is very slanted. I mean, that, you know, uh, indicates a, uh, a position. So uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I was able to get around this problem by just going to the actual legislation that this person had sponsored and quoting verbatim the language that, that the, the, the law had used. Yes. But it goes to show, I mean, even language itself is, is being increasingly uh, colonized by a, 
you know, quite narrow left-wing elite. Yeah. Um, and so that even the way you talk about these things is now extremely uh, charged. And you it, couldn't hear the police sirens in the background. I already. think they were coming yeah. to get us. Yeah, yeah well, I think uh, the, reaction. they know that there is... Uh, but um, you did point out in the piece also that Trump... Like Boris Johnson, did have similarities to Boris Johnson, um, probably overdone the similarities between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, but they were both larger-than-life characters who were socially liberal, and yet Trump was in many ways a more effective leader than Boris has been, uh, despite both of them now being out of power. The genius of Donald Trump is that he is transactional and he thinks about everything as a real estate uh, sale. So, you know, he, and he realized that he had to deliver certain things that the coalition supporting him for president wanted to get. Otherwise, he would be, um, you know, uh, not only would he face difficulties politically, but also he would just be viewed as a failure by his own team. So uh, with Supreme Court justices, for example, Donald Trump was happy to defer to the Federal Society, which is generally, you know, the legal society that, uh, you know, supports judges who are very strict constitutionalists, which means that they would be judges who would probably get rid of Roe v. Wade. Um, and, and Donald Trump didn't try to outthink, you know, his own position, whereas I think other Republicans, including, you know, someone like George W. Bush, who was probably personally more socially conservative and perhaps even more pro-life than someone like Donald Trump, these other Republicans, you know, they tried to be more Machiavellian and they wound up, you know, sort of outsmarting themselves. And they would think, well, you know, I have to have a certain number of middle of the road ju judicial appointments mm. so that, you know, uh, the Republican Party doesn't get branded as extreme and doesn't start losing elections. And Donald Trump just didn't care about any of that. And, you know, and, and turns out the Republican voters don't care about that either. They want to see what they believe in enacted in government. They don't want to elect Republicans who support agendas that are not their own. So, and I think that's why Donald Trump right now is, um, you know, is a appears to be a shoe-in for the nomination of the Republican Party for president uh, in 2024. Uh, a lot of voters feel like Donald Trump delivered exactly what he promised. And, and on the, going back to the social conservatism, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, if you look at Dobbs, the Supreme Court's reversal of, of Roe v. Wade, and the consequences of that politically, I think it's a neutral observer would say it's fair to say it has energised the pro-abortion side and as has electorally benefited the Democrats uh, significantly. Well, you know, I actually have been won over by arguments which say that that um, sort of um, casual impression is mistaken. Right. That in fact, if you look at how pro-life governors, in many cases, governors who enacted quite strict uh, bills limiting abortion within their states in the run-up to last year's uh, 2022 midterm elections. Mm. So that, you know, midterm elections generally refers to congressional elections, but there are also a lot of governors and senators who are up for re-election. And in fact, um, you know, some of the most, um, you know, strongest pro-life anti-abortion governors, uh, they were re-elected re by very large margins. Mm. So it doesn't seem to have been something that affected gubernatorial incumbent governors. Now, um, you know, there, there are all these questions about, did the Republicans have weak candidates where they were not already incumbents? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, and I, it's, that's a complicated story as well. Yeah. Uh, basically, I, I think that the best analyses have shown it was not necessarily weaker candidates, but rather the Republicans didn't learn the lessons of 2020, which is that, you know, basically when you have um, some of these new voting techniques, early voting, voting by mail, a lot of uh, these things which Donald Trump criticized and which Republicans generally don't like, 
But once those have been implemented, if you're not playing by the same rules the other team is playing by, if they're playing by a more generous set of rules, mm. they're going to beat you. So the Democrats, uh, both in 2020 and in 2022, they maximized their turnout with you know, vote by mail and with um, uh, early voting and things like that. And they also you know, made a real effort to mobilize people who were not um, – you know, accustomed to going to the polls, mm. uh, you know, sort of sections of the electorate which were sympathetic to the Democrats, but which had not been picked up by pollsters because these were people who had not voted, you know, in, in years and years. Donald Trump actually, back in 2016, he had a similarly entrepreneurial approach to voters. He went to a lot of places where, uh, you know, in Wisconsin and elsewhere that had never seen a presidential candidate, you know, go and personally campaign in their in their cities and towns in a generation, not since the 1980s. And a lot of those voters became Barack Obama to Donald Trump voters. There was only a small number of them in absolute terms, but they were in strategically essential, vital places. Mm. And that really made a tremendous difference in winning the election in 2016 for Donald Trump. So Republicans in uh, 2024... Uh, I don't think the pro-life issue is the thing that hurts them. I think the thing that hurts them is not uh, taking seriously the fact that um, they have to compete in the same way uh, as the Democrats uh, for early voters, voters by mail, and for parts of the electorate that haven't been mobilized before. You talked earlier about how uh, Republicans tend to think, like conservatives have often thought, that they can sort of glom on a bit of uh, economic nationalism, a bit of populism, um, but not really change anything else. And... and, um, Someone that's, that's talked a lot about like that is Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. And he was seen as someone who almost, he looks like a conventional Republican. He talks a little bit like a, a Trumpist, but not too much like a Trumpist. Um, but then, I mean, he's not going to be a, a presidential candidate, is he? Well, I think Glenn Youngkin very much wants to be a presidential candidate. What he succeeded in doing, so Virginia is, on the one hand, a southern state, yeah. at least you know historically, uh, but it's also the state where you have, in addition to Maryland, but Virginia in particular, you have a lot of uh, Washington, D.C. government you know, contractors, uh, uh, bureaucrats, etc., and you have uh, you know lobbyists and you know other people. So the leading industry of Virginia, in many ways, is government itself, yeah. which is a very bad thing if you're a conservative and you're you know generally critical of the growth of government. Uh, and also, in, in terms of you know the cultural divide, uh, education is is the thing that usually marks the educational divide. So Northern Virginia, near Washington D.C., is extremely highly educated. It's one of the most educated places in the country, with you know a lot of uh, not just undergraduate degrees but graduate degrees, etc. And so those voters, even when they're Republicans, tend to be uh, you know sort of never Trump style Republicans. They are not populist. They are uh, you know what might be called. Um, sort of uh, liberal uh, Republicans, uh, liberal in the economic sense, uh, you know, but also, to be honest, quite liberal in the more social sense as well. I think Northern Virginia Republicans are probably most accepting of same-sex marriage, and perhaps they're fairly, you know, sort of tolerant of, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, lax abortion laws and things like that. Yeah. Um, so you have this very divided state where it has this older Southern contingent, uh, which, you know, traditionally would have defined the state's character. And then you have this newer Northern Virginia contingent, which is very much, um, you know, based on the governing class mm-hmm. and, uh, and its ideology, which is generally liberalism in both parties. Uh, Glenn Youngkin was amazingly able to combine those two elements. So Youngkin himself, he's highly educated. He was the chairman or the CEO, uh, the president perhaps of the uh, the Carlyle Group. Yeah. Now the Carlyle Group is a lobbying, you know, um, 
basically a globalist, you know, lobbying investment, you know, um, entity, uh, which was started by alums, uh, alumni of the um, uh, George H.W. Bush administration. I mean, it really is the insiders' insiders club. Mm. Um, you know, it's uh, it's rather notorious for that. So Glenn Youngkin, on the one hand, had those insider credentials, but um, he still has a bit of a southern accent, and he still was able to connect, you know, in terms of seeming like a normal person with uh, downstate voters. So Youngkin was actually very successful. He tried to he he did quite successfully navigate the uh, the difficulties of are you a Trump Republican or are you anti-Trump? Uh, Youngkin was able to talk about issues in a way that made it seem like he was quite sympathetic to Trump. He didn't attack Trump, but he also didn't go out of his way to identify as a Trump-style Republican. So he kind of threaded the needle, mm. and he reaped a you know great success in Virginia in 2021 as a result. Um, he would very much like to be a presidential candidate. Um, I suspect you know probably not next year, but in 2028. And on education, he fought the culture war, and the culture war won it for him. Is it? That would be... Yeah, yes. Uh, so, you know, Glenn Youngkin, uh, he was critical of the fact that schools have been closed because of COVID. Mm. Uh, and he was also critical of transgenderism and generally left-wing educational tendencies within public education in the United States. So that was, you know, one of the things that helped elect him, that there was a sense of a backlash among parents who were very unhappy with the left-wing tilt of the schools, and they were very unhappy with the COVID crackdowns or lockdowns. And so, uh, you know, a lot of parents uh, went to the Republican Party and helped like Glenn Youngkin. There's more to the story as well, but that certainly is a key component of it. Well, and because I think a lot of things when Republicans and conservatives talk to each other, Republican and conservative politicians talk to each other, they agree that wokery, woke politics is a great political opportunity for them. Um, and that both parties as institutions should be developing more in, in uh, an agenda for fighting woke politics. Well, that's true, but you can't rely on it uh, as your only or perhaps even your primary uh, source of appeal. So I think that's one of the weaknesses right now of Ron DeSantis and his campaign against uh, Donald Trump for the Republican nomination next year. Uh, Ron DeSantis gives more of an impression that he's anti-woke than that he's pro-populist or pro, you know, sort of uh, economic nationalist or anything like that. Donald Trump, I think it's actually the opposite. So in the past, you know, a couple of weeks here in the United States, there had been a uh, basically a political meme or a political advertisement um, that the um, DeSantis campaign circulated on Twitter that was mocking Donald Trump for being uh, tolerant of uh, drag queens and yeah. uh, supportive of same-sex marriage and things like that. Uh, and then the second half of the advertisement was meant to be showing uh, Ron DeSantis as a manly man, but it actually made Ron DeSantis look really gay. So <laughs> the whole thing was was extremely, you know, sort of, uh, I guess the kids would call it a self-own, right? Yeah. It was uh, yeah. <laughs> just a, extremely uh, self-damaging. Um, but I think one of the weaknesses here is that the DeSantis people really think, hey, if we can show that we, you know, have uh, the, the the greatest degree of discomfort and hostility towards drag queens, that's going to get us, you know, voters in Iowa, that's going to get us voters in uh, in Michigan or wherever. And, uh, you know, voters in Michigan, they want someone who's going to bring jobs back to the United States and back yes. to their communities. And if Ron DeSantis is campaigning just as a culture warrior and not as, you know, an economic nationalist, he's going to lose. And in fact, you know, he's losing to Trump right now. Voters are quite tolerant of a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump who may personally be more, you know, progressive or liberal in their their social views or in their in their own way of life, perhaps. Um, nevertheless, you know, this idea that a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump, especially, is on our side that he he wants to fight our enemies and he really he he feels a certain solidarity with us, even though 
uh, Boris Johnson and a Donald Trump are both of a social class very different from that of their voters. Mm. The voters nonetheless feel a certain emotional connection. They feel as if this person cares about people like me and also that this person is going to fight the people who, who hate people like me. Whereas Ron DeSantis, I think, comes off as more of a conventional politician. He does come across as a conventional politician, or he always has to me anyway. But, I mean, he he has a better shot than I think perhaps uh, the polls would suggest. Do you think that's a fair thing to say against Trump for the Republican nomination? No, I actually think uh, the opposite may prove to be the case, that DeSantis might underperform relative to his polls, and uh, then he will you know, be in the awkward position of having run a presidential campaign that leaves him uh, worse off in terms of political capital and his future than if he had not run a campaign. I think it was a mistake for him to get in this race uh, because it was always going to be very difficult to pull Republican voters away from Donald Trump. They have a habit of voting for Trump, right? So, I mean, they made him the nominee in 2016. They voted for him for president in 2016 and in 2020. And now you have all these newcomers arrive and say, oh, well, why don't you vote for me instead of Donald Trump? Republican voters still feel, you know, as if Donald Trump is their man. They're on the same team. Uh, Ron DeSantis was trying to break up that relationship. He was trying to, you know, and if you're going to do that, you have to make a really strong case for, um, you know, how you are more appealing and have a better relationship with voters than Donald Trump does. And DeSantis, you know, again, I think he's tried to do that by uh, talking about ver- various hardline policies, which I think are generally good policies in Florida. But voters are not, you know, rationalists. They're not, le- they're not as concerned about, you know, policy as they just are about personality and the idea, is this person like us? Is he, you know, does he, does he you know, support people like me? Yes. Well, Dan, your uh, predictions on politics have been uh, more astute than than anyone else I know. So thank you very much for coming on to Americano uh, and great to have you in London. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Farose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.